You are listening to Sermon Audio from Providence Baptist Church. Be sure to check out pbcfrankfort.org for more information. If you have a Bible, if you'd turn to Hebrews chapter 6. Uh, Hebrews chapter 6, we're going to be looking at verses 4 through 12 today. And as you're turning there, say it with me. We want to know Jesus better, love Jesus more, and serve Jesus greater. Now, take out your hands and do this. Because we got a doozy ahead of us today. (laughs) Hebrews 6, beginning in verse 4. This is, without a doubt, one of the most historically difficult and multi-interpreted and applied pieces of Scripture within the Bible, in my opinion. And we're going to be talking today about what the author is trying to communicate both to his readers and to us today through this passage. Uh, We're going to be reading in just a moment, and he's going to talk about a group of people. He's going to refer to them in the third person, those who... And we'll read the rest of that later. And so uh, that, that gives us a little bit of a clue immediately. If I'm talking to, to Ed here in the front row and I'm talking to Ed about a conversation that I had with Chuck last week. And I'm talking to Ed and I say, well, he said blah, blah, blah. Chuck's not indirectly involved in this conversation, but he's a part of it by being in that third person. You get it? And so by him referring to this group of people in the third person, it gives us an indication immediately that he's talking about a group of people that are not necessarily engaged in this conversation that he's having with this group of Jewish Christians through this letter that he's written. But who are these people? Who is this group of people? Um, uh, There's no lie in this statement If you were to research through commentaries and scholars and historians and everybody else that pours into Bible study, there are places that you might find as many as six different interpretations or understandings as to who this group is, whether they're a real group or whether they're a hypothetical group. And for simplicity's sake, I've just kind of narrowed it down to three for us to think through as we go through this today. One is that this is a group of people who are actual Christians who have lost their salvation, either through sin or deliberate rejection of Christ. A second position that's most common is that these are, to borrow a phrase from our culture, Christians in name only, meaning they said the right things and they took part in some of the right things, but the reality of it is they were never saved to begin with, and that's evidence because they do reject Christ ultimately. And then there's a third major realization that this is a hypothetical or an unrealized situation that the author uses as an example or as a warning for his teaching. And I'll just go on and tell you right up front, that's where I stand with this. And, and I'll, I'll walk you through my reasoning in that as we go through. But we, it helps us to remember the context of this letter. The context of this letter is predominantly a community of Jewish Christians who are by virtue of the persecution and the troubles in the world that are around them. They are thinking about or at least having the temptation to return back to what they know and what is comfortable, namely their Jewish tradition, rituals, and faith. 
And within that context lies this little subtext that we've really started dealing with last week because what we're looking at today is entrenched in a section that begins really at chapter 5, verse 11, where we started last week, which is a subtext about spiritual maturity, about moving on, about progressing, about not just being stagnant or staying in one position, but moving on in the maturity. And so it's for these reasons and some others that I'll allude to later that I really believe the author is using this group here that we'll read about in just a moment as a hypothetical or an unrealized situation as a warning. For if these are real Christians that he's speaking of who have lost their salvation... That flies directly in the face of scriptural teaching and understanding that there is an eternal security for those who are found in Christ. And I think that's a dangerous position to hold. Uh, Additionally, if they have fallen away, which is what verse 6 tells us, that through their sin, through their neglect, through their disobedience, they have fallen away, well, this as a warning is too little too late like warning a child about putting something in an electrical socket after they've done shock themselves. If these are unsaved persons, these are real persons within the community of faith here, and they're unsaved, then it's impossible to renew them to repentance because they've never had repentance in the first place. They've never known the Lord through the repentance and the need for salvation in that manner. And so we need to understand that although the Bible does teach about these types of things, it appears to me this is a hypothetical teaching, a hypothetical situation that he's going to use as a warning to them. Now, you should have gotten, hopefully as you came in, uh, a little handout for those who are on our live stream. I think it's either in the comment section or somewhere in our live stream. And I'm not going through all of these things today, but I, I wanted you to have this as a resource. Because as we try to figure out who these people are and are they real or hypothetical, what what are some of the things the Bible teaches about these things? And and, and this is by no means in any of these topics an exhaustive list of all the scriptures that speak to them. But the Bible does teach that there's an eternal security for the believer. It does teach that there's a possession of eternal life as a gift from God and that God works and he works in the sealing of the Holy Spirit and and there's this work of completion that exists in those who have truly trusted God and truly trusted Christ and his work on the cross that there is an eternal security that they cannot lose that which has been given to them, gifted through Christ. The second piece there, Scripture does teach the necessity of the believer enduring. Scripture does not ever teach that the salvation moment is the finish line. It teaches the salvation moment, the conversion moment, the time when that person's heart is made one with God right through Christ, through grace and faith. That is a beginning point. And then endurance and perseverance and the work of sanctification and the work of being made more like Christ is what should be happening in our life. And so it teaches the necessity of the believer enduring. And then thirdly on that paper, it does teach, Scripture does teach that some who appear to be saved are not. Jesus teaches it in the Gospels. Paul refers to it in 2 Corinthians 11 of false servants of righteousness. Talks about those who teach of false brothers. 1 John 2 says that there were some who went out of their community. And by proving they went out of their community of faith, 
proved that they never were part of it to begin with. And so we have all these issues that we have to deal with when we look at a piece of scripture like this. And, and I want to make this point very clear. This is one of the reasons why we don't approach scripture through the lens of our own particular theological or ideological position. We approach scripture and let scripture lead us in our theology. So if you have a particular theological or ideological position about whether or not a Christian can lose their salvation or whether or not they can or whether one can renew it or so on and so forth, if you come to this scripture with that lens, you're going to read it a specific way. Let's just use it for another example. If you have a particular theological position about the offices of the church and, and who should be pastors and who should be overseers and who should be deacons and how those things should work. If you are, are set in that to begin with, then you can then go find scripture that supports your theology. If you have a particular theological or ideological bend on the role of women in the church, you might be one of those who've come to me over the 20 years I've been in ministry and said, see right there, Paul says women are supposed to be silent. But you didn't come to me and say, oh, Paul also said Phoebe, a woman, was a deaconess. We don't approach Scripture through our theological lens. We allow Scripture to form our theology and teaching us the fullness and the truth of who God and Christ are and what they have done for us and how the Holy Spirit then works in our lives. And I'm not downplaying theology. I'm not downplaying systematic understandings. I'm not downplaying. All those things are important. But we do not approach Scripture in that sense. So let's read and let's make sense as best we can today of Hebrews 6, beginning of verse 4. He writes, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. The first question that actually comes to my mind when I begin there in verse 4 other than trying to figure out if these people are real, if they're Christian, if they're not Christian, or if they're hypothetical, is this. Who is the author saying it's impossible for? He says it's impossible for these people, and we'll, we'll look at all that as we go along, but it's impossible for them to be renewed, be restored to repentance. Well, who's it impossible for? Well, it's not impossible with God. 
Because with God, all things are possible. It's not impossible with God because we know, we believe a central truth of the scriptures that anyone who with a spirit of repentance and humility cries out to God, no matter what they may have done or no matter what they may be doing, God will hear them and receive them and respond. So it cannot be impossible for God to move in this situation. The, the impossibility lies with, whether they are hypothetical or real, the persons themselves. And verse 6 gives us a clue to that. I know I'm jumping down a little bit, but look at what it says in verse 6. After they've fallen away to restore them again, look at how it describes. Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. You don't have to be a grammatical major to understand that those words crucifying and holding mean that they are actively doing that in the present situation. And so what the author, I believe, is pointing us to is this. It's impossible to be restored, to be renewed, to be made new by the repentance of faith and belief in Christ when you're crucifying him in your present situation. When you're holding him up to contempt, to shame in public life. In other words, that it's impossible for them to think about repentance because the only one who can grant them forgiveness through the gift of repentance, they're turning their back on. They're turning him away. The, the words crucifying him and, and holding him up in contempt or shame are words that point this group of people, be they real or hypothetical, back to the crowds who cried out, crucify him. Make him die. Give us the criminal. Put him on the cross. And so it's impossible to renew to repentance when the object of repentance you're turning your back on. The impossibility does not lie with God. The impossibility lies with the persons. And look at how they're described here. It says, verse 4, they've once been enlightened. What does it mean to be enlightened? It means to have illumination or knowledge or understanding. Uh, we know historically the Enlightenment period was that period where uh, man's thought began to be, well, if you can't prove it by reason or by logic or by science, then it must not be real. You had to have the knowledge by being enlightened in that sense. And so the question comes for us, can a person be enlightened? Can they have understanding? Can they have knowledge of God, of Jesus, of the work on the cross, of the gospel, of the teachings? and yet not be saved. We'll return to that one here in just a moment. It says not only have they been enlightened, but it says they've tasted the heavenly gift. They've tasted of the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. Some commentators say this absolutely proves that they were Christians who lost their salvation because to be tested, to tasted means that they tasted it and they consumed it. They digested it fully. And yes, in places like Hebrews 2.9, for example, when it says that Jesus would taste death for everyone, that's the meaning of the word taste there, that he took it all in. But the word taste that's used has a wide range of meaning in the New Testament. In Matthew 27, verse 34, as Matthew records Jesus' days and nights on the, on the cross, and it says they offered him a drink, a sponge mixed with wine and this substance called gall, which would have been a, a mixture of herbs that would have deadened the pain for Jesus. 
It says he tasted it, but did not drink it. In other words, he tasted it, he, he knew what it was, but he did not drink it because he knew he needed to take the fullness of all of the sin, the fullness of all the pain for the sake of his sacrifice. So can a person taste without being saved? Can a person share? Some, uh, some translations say became partakers of the Holy Spirit. And again, this word has a wide range of meanings. Everything from denoting possession of to just merely being in cooperation with or being partners with. And I don't think anybody worth their theological salt would say that we are partners with the Holy Spirit. I mean, trying to put us and our nature on a, co, uh, a coexistent nature with Him. He does the work. Can you be sharing? Can you be partaking of the Holy Spirit and His gifts without saving? And then we come to that troublesome phrase there in verse 6. He says, These people, be they real or hypothetical, have fallen away. In your Bible, maybe like mine, up above chapter 5, verse 11, the subheading says, Warning Against Apostasy. And here's the reality. This word that is translated in English, have fallen away, is not the traditional Greek word for apostasy. There's only two places in Scripture, Acts 21-21, where uh, Paul is accused of leading the Jews to forsake the way of Moses and all the Jewish faith. That word forsake is the, is the, word, the Greek word for apostasy. 2 Thessalonians 2-3, the rebellion that would be to come of the man of lawlessness, that is the word for apostasy. But here, this Greek word does not define what we would define as apostasy. It's more in line with what Paul says in another passage in the New Testament that I'll read for you. Galatians chapter 5, verse 2. Similar situation. The church at Galatia was being tempted to accept, the Gentile Christians in particular, to accept uh, the fullness of Jewish law as being their saving grace, if you will. And listen to what Paul says in chapter 5, verse 2 of Galatians. Look, I, Paul, say to you, if you accept circumcision... Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision, he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. And listen to this, you have fallen away from grace. It's not the same word, but it's a derivative of the word that the author uses here in Hebrews to describe having fallen away from or fallen out of a state or condition. And Paul there in Galatians declares it as being grace. Can you be enlightened? Can you taste? Can you uh, share or be a partaker in what the Holy Spirit is doing? Well, look at the metaphor in verses 7 and 8. The metaphor helps us to understand. I'll read 7 and 8 again. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. It says land that has drunk the rain that falls. It's not two different lands. It's not one land that has received rain and the other land that has not. It's land that has received the same rain. And in some areas of the land, it has produced good fruit. It has produced a useful crop. In the other area of the land, it's drunk of the same rain, but it's only produced thorns and thistles. 
And it says in the metaphor, it gives us some, some clues here. Look again what it says in verse 8. If it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless. Worthless just means lacking in usefulness or value. And near to being cursed. It doesn't say it is cursed. It says it's near to being cursed. And in the end, to be burned. And there are some who said, well, being burned there proves it. It means that they're, they're being consigned to hell. They're being consigned to that ultimate rejection. Um, I know I've got some farmers in here, and I know I've got some farmers in here that at times, probably, maybe not so much in modern day because we've got different techniques than we use, but maybe years ago, decades ago, you might have gone through your fields with what is called a controlled burn, not to remove the land, but to remove that which was on the land which was not being useful so that the land could be useful. And that is the author's intent here. It's not that it's burned and worthless to be thrown away, but it's burned to remove the thorns, to remove the thistles, so that it might then be of use. Can there exist a person who's been enlightened, tasted, and shared, and yet still not be saved? I think we could point to Judas as an example. Judas certainly knew who Jesus was. He certainly had knowledge and understanding. He certainly was part of the tasting and the sharing of the work of the Holy Spirit. In the Gospels, when it says Jesus sent the disciples out and they all came back and said, we've healed people and demons have been cast out in your name and so on and so forth. It never says all of them but Judas. So he, he must have been part of that, but yet we know... What Scripture tells us is ultimately he wasn't saved. Simon the magician in Acts chapter 8 is also one who's described as one who believes and is baptized. And there's no differentiation in the word that is used there by Luke and Acts that says that his belief was somehow different or his baptism was somehow different. But yet Peter, when Simon comes and wants to buy the gift of the Holy Spirit, tells him in Acts, uh, Acts 8.22 that he needs to repent and it's the same repentance that Peter uses in his, in his sermon in Acts chapter 2 when he says, repent and be baptized. So we know that there are people. We know there's a possibility of being enlightened and being tasting and sharing. We also know that for this point in culture and time, the understanding of the words like justification and sanctification and righteousness, those words were entrenched deeply in the Christian community. So if the author here is intent to prove that a Christian can lose his salvation, why would he have not used those words instead? Why would he have used these words that can be understood? Again, I think personally it's because this is a hypothetical warning. And let's move on to see that play out. Look at verse 9. It says, though we speak in this way, in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation or perhaps better understood, things that are associated with people who are actually saved. If this was a real group of Christians who had lost their salvation or a real group of unsaved Christians who looked the part but really are proving they're never saved, then verse 9 would have read very different. It might have read something like this. In your case, however, beloved, we know that some of you are like those people. We know that a portion of you are these people who can never be renewed to repentance. 
There would have been a differentiation made. But in verse 9, there's a, there's a writing here, and there's nothing in this writing that speaks to any part of this community that he's writing to in Hebrews being those people. In your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. To feel sure is to be confident, to have confidence in the truth, to have confidence in the validity of what's being stated. And so he says, for you... And again, think about the subtext here. The subtext began with their spiritual immaturity. But for you, even though you're spiritually mature, for you, even though you should have been teachers by now, for you, we still feel confident that you are in Christ. So then what's the point of the preceding verses? What's, what's the point in giving this, this warning, giving this, this metaphor? Well, we might term it this way. He essentially is painting in those verses the worst-case scenario. And don't tell me you've not ever said this to your children or, or you've heard it from yourself or uh, somebody said it to you. If you go down this path, this is what's going to happen. If you choose to make this choice or these series of choices, this is what's going to go on. And so it's as if he's saying, if, Jewish Christians, you're considering abandoning Christ and considering abandoning the gospel, and if you follow through, then this is your inevitable outcome. And we've said that to people or had that said to us, haven't we? You want to make this choice? Okay, make, understand, before you make this choice, before you make this series of choices, this is the outcome. These are the consequences. This is what's going to happen. And we say that to them out of love, but as a warning, don't we? Sometimes we say that to them because we've experienced similar things. We don't want them to make the same mistakes or the same choices that we've made. And so we speak from experience to them. But he says this is not true of them. Of you, we believe better things. We feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. What are these things? Look at verse 10. God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you've shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. He points out their work or their acts of service. He points out their love, specifically for the saints, and he points out the nature of God's just nature. That God is not so just as to throw someone away. God is not so just as to not renew them through repentance who have not been displaying the fruits of their salvation. Now, don't get it twisted. He is not and I am not advocating works-based salvation here. Nobody is saying that through your work and your love, you can somehow earn God's love for you. But this is salvation being proven by works. This is being able to say that I know I belong to him and he is indwelling in me. And again, consider this subtext. Even in spiritual immaturity, even in moments where we should now be teachers by now, he is still making himself evident and present and, and showing our salvation in him by the works, by the love that we have for the saints. 
Why is this important? Why is your maturity, why is my maturity, why is our progression in sanctification important? Well, it's important because, number one, the Bible commands that we should do that. You, you can't take me to a place in Scripture that says, all right, believe in Jesus, now just coast. doesn't exist. We're called to Christ-likeness. We're called to be like his son. So the promise of Romans 8, that he's, he's making us, he's conforming us to the image of his son. We're called to spiritual maturity. We're called to growth. It doesn't mean that we go from this point to this point and it's always a straight line because there are hills and there are valleys and there are tough days and there are good days. But it ought to be moving this way in some direction. The Bible makes it clear that the, for the Christian, for the one who's been saved by faith and grace in Jesus Christ, there is no room for just hanging out. Uh, even, even this metaphor from verses 7 and 8, right? It gives us two pieces, one that produces fruit and one that produces thorns and thistles and then gets burned. It doesn't give us a middle ground. It doesn't give us an option for riding the fence. So our maturity, our proving our salvation by having God do this work through us is important. But secondly, it's important because there are people in my life and in your life who do not yet know Jesus who need to see maturity in my life and your life and spiritual progression in my life and your life so that what we're calling them to or what we're asking them to believe they think actually has merit. Because if we say to them in an evangelistic opportunity, Jesus will change your life, and then my life's not changed. If we say to them, the gospel says that the Holy Spirit will come and dwell you and make you righteous and make you like Christ, and then our lives show no evidence of that, well, what's the point? I read yesterday a testimony from a guy named Dale Huntington, who's a pastor in San Diego, and he, he grew up in San Diego area, grew up as a teenager. He, he and his family were involved in what was called the Baha'i faith, and, and then he as a teenager actually turned agnostic. Maybe there's something out there, we just can't know it. And he played in a punk rock band. That's so San Diego, isn't it? He played in a punk rock band, and he gave his testimony uh, on this, in this online um, blog that I was reading. And he said that a young man that he was in this band with gave his life to Christ. And after some time, the young man wanted the, the band to start writing Christian lyrics. And no, no way, we're not writing Christian lyrics, we're not writing Christian lyrics. And, but he said, after a while of debating, after some time, not just in that day, but many days, many weeks of debating... This is his words exactly. Something began to gnaw on me as I watched the way he lived his life. He read the Bible, he prayed, and he was still in a punk rock band with me. He was generous, he was kind, and he wasn't on a TV show with slick back hair asking me to give him money. He just loved Jesus. Your spiritual maturity, my spiritual maturity, our progression in sanctification is important because there may be someone, actually I'm not going to say that, there are someones in our lives who are wanting to see, are we producing thorns and thistles or are we producing a good crop useful for those who it's being cultivated for? 
He says that in verse 9 and verse 10 and verse 11 and 12. He gives this as we begin to close. We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness or the same diligence to have the full assurance of hope until the end. In other words, he says, what you've been doing, even in your spiritually immature self, what you've been doing, keep doing. And do it even more diligently. Do it even more with earnestness in your life. Have consistency in it, he says. And again, connecting all the way back to 511, this is presenting the antidote to their dull hearing, to their sluggish maturity. It's to let the work of sanctification, let the work of Holy Spirit in our lives be flowing out of us as he calls us to do what we are doing and to be eager about it. To be eager about it. Do you, do you know what most pastors and what most church leaders, be they lay leaders or deacons or ministry directors, well, you know what one of the things they, they dislike the most Asking for volunteers. And it's not because we don't want you to volunteer. It's not because we've had bad moments with volunteers. It's because in most cases, and again, I've been a part of three churches. I've seen it in every church I've been a part of. Most cases, we have to drag people kicking and screaming to serve. And he says, do so with eagerness. Do so with diligence. Do so with consistency. It's part of our spiritual maturity. It's part of our spiritual progression. He encourages them with that. He encourages them in verse 12 that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. We'll see some of those promises next week when we do 13 through the end of the chapter through 20. We'll for sure see some of those promises and some of those great heroes of faith when we get to chapter 11. But he says, do this with faith and with patience. Do it so you may have, he says, the full assurance of hope until the end. There at the end of verse 11. I love that phrase, full assurance, because it is a phrase that they would have used in this time to describe a ship getting full sail. You know what full sail means on a ship? Straight ahead. Speed, making, staying the course, making the distance. We have a full sail. We have a full power in the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And our assurance leads us to greater service, which in turn increases our assurance. Again, it's not that we're working for our salvation, but we're living in such a way that we're proving our salvation. Uh, it's said during the, the construction of the Golden Gate Bridge that early on they had several men who fell to their death. And so at some point, the contracting company, the construction company, built giant nets under the bridge and extended them out many, many feet out past the perimeter so that they could then catch the men who would fall because it really wasn't a matter of whether they were going to fall or not or if they would fall, it would be when they were going to fall. And outside of one tragic accident where an actual piece of scaffolding fell and th broke through the tent, or broke through the net, they never had anybody else individually fall into their death because they had that safety net below them. But the other interesting piece of this story is this. It is said that their production on the bridge went up by over 25% 
because when the workers knew that they were safe and secure, they had no hesitation about climbing and working. In your service, in my service, in your work, in my work, in your love for the saints, in my love for the saints, in our progression and spiritual maturity and being more like Christ, we have the greatest safety net that has ever been known to man. And his name is the one we do all that in, Jesus. His grace lays before us and underneath of us as an incredibly huge, strong safety net that when we make mistakes, that when we stumble, that when we fall, we know we are secure. We know that he has not forsaken us. We know that he will not leave us. You may be here today and thinking, man, I just don't know how or where or what I could do for the kingdom of God just work. In your work, if you fall, guess what? There's the safety net. Yeah, I, well, I don't know. It'd be, be awful hard for me to really love people like the way the Bible tells me to love them. Just love them. Because in those moments where loving them is hard, there's a safety net. Well, I don't know about forgiving them for everything. Forgive them. Because when we struggle to forgive, there's a safety net. And the safety net is his grace that is achievable to us by faith. Do I think these people were real Christians who lost their salvation? No, I do not. Do I think they were Christians in name only who had people fooled? No, I do not. I believe the author uses these difficult verses to say, okay, if you really want to make that choice, make it, but understand what the consequences will be. And today, every single one of us have choices to make. It's either to exit this place being the same old believer we've been, looking back in our history and going, well, yeah, I haven't really progressed much in the last 10 years, but it's okay because I'm saved. Or to make a choice to walk out here today as one who doesn't know Jesus at all. And you might even be trusting in some of the things that you consider your works. And I will remind you that in Matthew 7, 21 through 23, he said just works weren't enough. He told those people, depart from me, for I have never known you. If you need to know him, you need to know him today, and you don't need to leave without doing so. If you know him, you need to know that his, your knowing him means that you serve and you love and you work. And he is there as a safety net when you fall. And you need to lay, not leave today not having made that decision. I may have wasted that time, but I will not waste a single moment of this time that's before me. Thanks for listening. If you have any thoughts, questions, or prayer concerns, please email us at pbcfrankfurt at gmail.com.